This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Mayor Enechachomim Shmuzing with Rav Mayor Schiller. Rav Mayor, we've uh, covered uh, quite a bit of ground in a uh, storied life. And in, in, in your 20s, uh, you published a book. The book is called The Road Back, A Discovery of Judaism Without Embellishments. First of all, you know, authors are always asked at the end why they gave the titles. I'm actually more interested in the subtitle than I am in the title. My goal there in the subtitle was that this was going to be a discussion of mere orthodoxy, meaning that although towards the end I do present various camps within orthodoxy, my goal was to say this is the unfettered presentation of Torah Judaism and that whatever cultural or historical uh, amplifications have taken place over the centuries, but I was trying to just get at the at the core of it. So that's that's the Judaism without embellishments. By the way, the book is available on Amazon. They said they have one left, and you can get the first edition for fifty dollars. So so tell me, I mean, you were you know you were you had just begun your your teaching career. What 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 motivated you to to write a book at that at this point? It was actually long before my teaching career. I was still in Kola at the time. Actually, it took me several years because I could only work on it at night because I was in Kola during the day. So I would say I began work on it around 76. My goal was to be able to present a somewhat persuasive case for Orthodox Judaism to Jews who knew nothing and perhaps to clarify for Jews who did know something a bit of the essences of uh, of the Torah faith. And I worked on it at night, uh, handwritten. I did not type. I had no typewriter. Handwritten at night, sometimes listening to a ranger game in the background, but uh, at night. And uh, the reason why I began work on it was that at that time, I was in conversation with Rabbi Norman Lamb uh, fairly frequently. I would call him when I wanted to discuss some aspect of uh of Hashkalfa, of Jewish thought. And at some point, he urged me to put my thoughts down in writing. So I wrote one chapter and sent it to him. And he sent it back to me with his uh, um, suggestions and corrections and arguments. And that's how we kicked it off. And from that point on, uh, every couple of weeks, I would send him a few pages and he would send back his handwritten comments and corrections. And that's how it progressed over a two-year period. How did Norman Lamb go come into your circle? Norman Lamb was was operating in YU, and you were ensconced in, in the Skvere Koyal. It was actually um, pre-YU, or rather he was a professor at YU, but his job at that time was the rabbi of the Jewish Center. It was before he became president of YU. What, what I did in those days was I would read books at night again, because there was no Koyal at night. And whether on Jewish religious ideas or a general social philosophy, cultural philosophy. And when I would finish the book, if the book interested me, I would write down topics that I wanted to pursue with the author. 
And then I would, by hook or by crook, get the phone number of the author. And I would call them at night. And with one exception, only one exception, they were all gracious and happy to talk about their books with me. But otherwise, uh, everybody, everybody gave me time. So Rabbi Lamb was one of the Orthodox thinkers uh, who I called. And he was most gracious. I don't know if he had written any great magnum opus. He had published a number of articles in the tradition, which, of course, you ended up publishing in uh, also a number of articles in later in your life. Yes. Uh, is that where you discovered Norman Lamb in the pages of tradition? Uh, I did know him from tradition. That's true. He was the first editor of tradition. But Faith and Doubt had already been published then, A Hedge of Roses, and The Royal Reach. So the, there were already three volumes, but Faith and Doubt was the one which, uh, which evoked that phone call from me. The book is interesting because I was expecting it to be your story, and it sort of is your story and it isn't. So explain how you were able to, to sort of like navigate that it, it wasn't just how I became a Balchuba, but how everyone can become a Balchuba. Yes, it was. Many people have said the same thing that you just said to me over the years, which is that they had expected or wanted or would still like to see the serious autobiographical work. But it was a sense of an autobiography of ideas. In other words, these are the ideas that led me towards orthodoxy. This is the orthodoxy I discovered, but it wasn't phrased in that sort of personal sense. It was a, it was a catalog of the path that I took in terms of ideas. Right. And, and you sort of were, we knew, I mean, you, you, you gave us enough in the introduction and, and uh, throughout that we realized that you had come to orthodoxy, but you weren't interested in letting it be your, your story. You wanted it to somehow speak for others. Although again, they had, they would have to sort of inhabit the same intellectual mindset that you had laid out on the table in order to really proceed the way you did. Again, the book is really has inspired many, but it's not necessarily what we would call an inspirational book. Right, right. In your first comment that it is sort of based upon a, a realm of ideas that I inhabited is certainly true. It is sort of based upon a reading of, of world history, or at least of European history, which sees the the enlightenment is sort of the turning point of everything and not in the usual positive sense. Uh, Rabbi Elias and the Jewish Observer wrote a review of the book. He was in charge of the book section of the Jewish Observer at that time. He wrote a review which was largely positive, but he sounded some dissenting notes when he criticized my easy conflating of Jewish and Gentile history. In other words, he didn't like the fact that I saw this Gentile change through the Enlightenment or maybe going back to the Reformation even, that he didn't like that reading together of the Haskalah. Now, of course, in terms of history, I think his argument was was weak, but I understand that he wanted to always extricate Klal Yisrael from the rest of mankind. And he saw this this easy conflating of the Berlin Haskalah with the French Revolution as something that he felt might undermine the reader's sense of Jewish uh, uniqueness and isolationism. And and you mentioned to me last night that that the book was reissued uh, a second or third time. But have you ever thought about 
redoing the book or revisiting the book? Around, uh, must have been 20, 25 years ago, uh, Feldheim came to me and they asked me to, uh, to reissue it and I could, you know, change or alter anything I wanted to. And, um, I, I said no. I, I just felt that if I ever want to do anything like that, my thinking has moved in so many areas and it is so much more complicated and nuanced than it was then. And so if I ever want to do anything like that, I'd like to start from scratch. Uh, it, it was a book of a 25 year old and, uh, 25 year olds are very clear and passionate and self-righteous. And uh, that's something which uh, some of us lose as we go on in life. Am I to take it from that? There's might be passages there that don't downright embarrass you because you're proud of what you're able to do, but you sort of smirk knowingly uh, when you read them. In the second edition, I added in the section on proofs of orthodoxy, I added several pages based upon the B'nai Saskas approach to Amun of Shuta, because I felt that that was lacking in the first edition, that this was a rationalist's uh, approach to Judaism, and that I wanted to include qualities of the soul, which I think are also part of the faith process. So that is an example of some of something. Uh, also at the end, when I described the three camps of orthodoxy, non-orthodoxy, yeshivish, and hasidish, I had not yet encountered modern orthodoxy. So I was portraying it as I saw it in the pages of tradition and the writings of Rabbi Lamb and Rabbi Lichtenstein. So my actual confrontation with modern orthodoxy would have made me write that very, very differently. I included Hersheanism under modern orthodoxy because I thought ideologically they're the same camps. I didn't understand the vast role played by culture and team affiliation. So that although uh, Rav Hirsch and Breuer's ism really is much more on that Torah model worldview, but culturally Rav Breuer in the 1940s it consciously decided to become part of called the Hamish of the world. And um, that was a very important thing I did not grasp at the time, not at all. I probably would have included Hungarian orthodoxy in its own category, Today, you know, they're part of the Hasidic world. So those are some of the things I would have seen a little bit differently. You have definitely, um, you haven't been silent. They can find articles in Jewish action, uh, articles in tradition. But do you feel that in some ways you feel there's still a lot that you want to write? Very much so. Very much so. There, there are many books within me that I still uh, want to give out. The, the Torah Mada and the, the Torah Heretz uh, thing, uh, Orthodox education. I want to write something on. I am already writing something about my spiritual heroes or Rabbeim from all the centuries. So, and uh, also something about Square. I have in my mind to write something about Square to people who settled it. So, certainly those things are still uh, in the pipeline, hopefully to be brought out eventually. Again, what I would say is that. Part of the appeal, I think, of, of, of that book. But I think it was still on riding the crest of the great Altruva movement that was spurred by the Six Day War. Uh, and I think that even though, you know, it was 10 years later, but I think that was part of what, oh, here's another book, you know, to, to give to a seeker. Here's another book to give because maybe, you know, you want to embrace orthodoxy. There was, you know, NCSY was flexing its muscles at that time. 
So, and I think that was part of the reason why your book was seen uh, in the way it was. Feldheim actually stuck into the back of the book a list of Balchuvas, yeshivas, and institutions. I don't know if in the first edition, but certainly in the second, they had this list. And I was not happy with that because I didn't want it to be that kind of sort of aggressive proselytizing book. You know, you read this book now, go to the local or some but um, they assumed that I would have had no problem with it, but it's okay. It's there. Yeah. You, you mentioned the fact that it's a the book of a, a 25 year old. Now, I, I think one of the things that, that when people look at, at the writings of Rabbonin, uh, they don't take into consideration what we just said, that, uh, what what the Rav wrote when he was younger isn't necessarily his das now. There there is even a, a whole type of science of, uh, of of discovering manuscripts of the Gedolei Yisrael. I'll tell you two particularly: Rav Kivegel and the Aderes. Uh, after their deaths, they, 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 they there was. They were voluminous writers. They were incredible, fertile thinkers. And therefore, they left papers and papers. And it, it, it took the, the Hakamas Medina and the Shalvas HaNefesh of people to be able to go through these ancient boxes and discover. And therefore, anything that they discovered was gold and was printed. The problem there is, however, that, you know, not everything that that person was thinking about was necessarily something they wanted published. That's A. And B, you know, when you have someone like the Aderas or a Kivager, oh, it's a Rekivager. It's an Aderas. Once that statement is there, even though it was something that was written in an immature state in that Rav's life, or as I mentioned to you last night, a the dotage state when the Rav was not as sharp. It was something perhaps that, 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 that was a tuta. It was something that he was hoping maybe to send out that never was sent out because perhaps uh, he realized that his thinking was flawed or he, he didn't have uh, the, the, the rational thinking powers that he had earlier. But yet it becomes part of uh, the oeuvre. It becomes part of the canon of Jewish thought. And, and I think it, 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 it's, it's the lack of seeing authors as progressing. And therefore, anything that they say, any statement that they make becomes dogma or kavua. And now you need to actually, you know, go through various labyrinthic conniptions to try to figure out how this jives with something else that the other one said or, or here and there. And, 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 and I think it really, you know, obscures the fact that, 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 that they are humans and people and they grow and they change. I mentioned to you last night when we were talking that to me, a book that made such a lasting impression when I read it when I was a teen was the Tnuas Amusa, Rabbi Dave Katz's uh, multi-volume, wonderful uh, description of all the, the Musa movement. And of course, in the, in the first volume, after he deals with the sort of legendary Rabbi Zundel of Salant, he, he basically dedicates it to Rabbi Sol Salanta. And what I, what, what I found so refreshing in that reading, even as a teenager, was that Rabisol Salanter changed. Rabisol Salanter had one shita when he was young, and it developed based on the exigencies of, of his time period and based on failure 
of pushing a certain approach and what was necessary at the end of his life. Therefore, I think whenever we look at, like you say, you would write things differently based on your age and maybe based on the time. In other words, what the Baal of 1978 needs is probably not, although I'm sorry to tell you, probably the Baal of, of 2023 might need things spoken about in a different tone and, and with different proofs and with a different approach. Very differently. I would say very differently. I am often shocked when I go back to to works which had such a powerful effect on me, passionate, powerful effect on me. And I go back to them today and I say, oh, you know, that's good, but it's not the life transforming thing that it once was. I mean, I think in this context, I have a the bound volume of 1964 National Reviews, and I have a collection of Triumph, Brent Brozell's uh, counter to Buckley. And these were things that so excited me in those days. And today I look back, okay, I hear, but uh, my thinking has expanded in many ways beyond those days. So I, I'm not, I'm not, not makatov, but on the other hand, uh, life goes on. It gets, it gets complicated and it gets burdensome and, uh, it gets to some degree not as hopeful. In other words, when we're 25 years old, we're very hopeful. There is an important factor here and it has to do with being young. There is an important story here. Rabbi Lamb had arranged for the Shofstein brothers and Rabbi Lamb had published a lot of things for many authors through them. So I sent my manuscript to them, my, my bulky handwritten manuscript to the Shofsteins and they summoned me to their offices on Canal Street in the Lower East Side, and they were very sad to tell me that they didn't think there was a market for this whole Balchuva thing. It's going nowhere. This must have been like 1976 or 77. It's going to peter out. Nothing's going to happen. So then I could have published the book. Now, today, I probably would have just taken the manuscript, licked my wounds, and gone home. But being the age that I was at that point, I wasn't going to give up so easily. And I walked across the Lower East Side to Feldheim, used to have their Svarum store on East Broadway. So I walk in there and it was, and I'm looking around, it's empty, place is empty, so it seems, but I detect the, the faint uh, smell of cigar smoke and I go to the back of the, the back of the office there and there is Mr. Philip Feldheim sitting there with, what, what do they call those old time, the adding machines? He's sitting there with an adding machine, smoking a big cigar. And I tell him, you know, I just wrote this book and the Schofsteins has rejected it. You want to have a look at it, maybe? So he asked me, what's it about? And I told him, he says, okay, give it to me. I'll take it home. I want, I one copy. There was one copy and I entrusted it to Mr. Phil Feldheim. And a few days later, I get a call from him saying, yeah, he's interested. Let's proceed. Let's go further. And again, it, it's just so uncanny when you think about the Hashgacha Pratias here, because again, I, I, I would today, I would have been beaten today by that Sharfstein rejection. But in those days, there was no being beaten, no being beaten at all. And, uh, you know, thank God it worked out well. You know, I, I want to talk about Hirsch. Um, and, and by the way, I, I, I want to tell you that um, I was once involved in, in, in teacher uh, advancing your education. It was necessary at the, for the outfit I was working for, the high school I was working for in Chicago, that the teachers would take advanced courses to uh, push their envelope of their pedagogy and their knowledge. So we were meeting with a bunch of other rabbis. And I remember that uh, 
I, I, I was making a point and I said that, uh, I said, well, the way Hirsch explains this idea, and I remember there was a, uh, a Laman who was starting to become a high school Rebbe. He stood up and said, you know, Rabbi Kibalevich, I, I object. You keep on saying Hirsch, 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 you know, that's, that's such a lack of COVID. <laughs> so I said to him, okay, so the next time you quote the, the Svarno, should somebody be Meicha on you as well to say that, you know, here's what you, what you've done. So, you know, I I said, it's not a, I said, Adarab, I said, it's really a sign of, of how he's become uh, such a a Yisoyed. I said, of course, I know that he's Rav Shamshin Ben Rav Fol Bersh, but I'm saying to believe me, I have the ultimate comment for him. So I, I think though, and, and I know you've, you've written about him. One thing that, that I think you see by Hirsch, and, and this is a point I, 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 want, I hope you'll be able to, to explain, as, 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 as incredible as he was, and, and, and so much of it self-taught. R- remember, and I think, you know, when he goes to Mannheim to learn with the Arach Lener, he's going to college, to Bonn. He just knows that he's going to be able to cross the river and spend some time with Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger as well. His purpose was to go to college. That was his purpose. But he knew he wanted to learn. And and, and even though he had tutors when he was young, he didn't have a, a cheder a background. He didn't have a, 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 the background of the, the normal G'dayle soil. So his accomplishment of what he was able to do, even his ability to write rabbinic truvas, is, is astounding. Astounding. And his, his, his ability to be makif so much in terms of uh, the totality of Torah Shabal Peh in almost every mitzvah. So there's a but coming. <laughs> and that is that I don't see, and I, I you know, he, he, in, in some ways, he is, stas- there's a stasis about Raversh. There is, there's an immense beauty to his German prose. The people who, who read German talk about how, how they, you can cry over the, the, his poetry. Of, of, of language, but his essential Yisoidus that he laid down as a young man in, in, in the 19 letters of, of, of Ben Uziel, it, it seems like those are the same Yisoidus that he wrote, the revisits in Chorev, and, and basically become the basis more or less of his explanations of mitzvahs in his parish on Chumash and others. So, you know, you know, I mentioned the fact just earlier about the Idaris and Rikivager that they were and Mr. Salanter as, as, as minds that were constantly changing. I don't get that sense about Hirsch. I get no. the sense that, that, that he, he came to his calling and, and he never moved from that base. He expanded it immensely and he was able to gain new armor, uh, in, in his fight and, 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 and continue to invest passion. But it's not like he was rewriting his his principles. Also, he couldn't escape. He couldn't escape his time and place. He was forever the child of mid nineteenth century uh, bourgeois uh, liberal nationalism, in the sense that he envisioned Europe transforming into a liberal but still nationalist based society. His parish of Chumash is rooted in morality. There is no whiff of mysticism at all there. So he remains who he is there throughout uh, 
throughout his years. That's certainly true. And um, he remains the defender of the Austrit at the end of his life when finally the German parliament uh, agrees to Austrit and Hirsch finds out, finds out that the majority of his congregants are not going to go with him into, into the Austrit uh, desert. In, in one of the uh, monographs that, that, that you wrote, you quote from uh, the translation from Judaism Eternal, where, you know, Hirsch speaks about good citizenship and how important um, it is to recognize the country that, that you live in. And, you know, Hirsch's imagery of the cradle that, that you were born in and the place where you heard the, your child's first laugh. I thought that was so, such a beautiful image of why despite criticisms we might have of a country, and maybe a country that sometimes deals unfairly with, with certain parts of the population, the fact that we could live in a state of relative freedom, and and and, and therefore we should be bound, just like the Rashba's understanding of Dina Damachus Adina, they, they're kaivishas, we're here, we're part of it. So, so there's such an essential part of your life that you can't disconnect from the 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 country that that birthed you. I see it almost like a Hegelian type of uh, understanding that that countries have a persona, and that when you are connected to that country, when you when you breathe the air and and and, and drink its water, you are bound to that country uh, in ways that are as deep as any human connection. And I think Hirsch seems to to uh, embrace that. In, in terms of his, uh, without sacrificing any sense of, of being part of Claudius. Several thoughts on that, because it is a very important part of his thinking. Number one, I think one of the reasons why certain people are attracted to Hirsch is that he had a sense that Claudius and the surrounding world, whether it was Germany or whether it was all mankind, has a very deep relationship to us. We are not isolated from it. Our task is not to demonize it. Our task is to relate to the world and to some degree to uplift it and to improve the world. And I think for many Jews, you know, in the Balchuva community or modern Orthodox, and even in the Yeshivish world, you have those who are not quite at ease with the sense of utter demonizing isolationism, which um, haunts much of, or most of Haredism, so I think that's, number one, a very important part of Rav Hirsch, both in terms of Germany and in terms of the uh, the totality of mankind. The second point is that once nations lose their identity, um, how does that affect things? In other words, once England becomes, you know, Jamaican and Pakistani, is it England and how should I relate to that New England or New France, which is being born? That's that's my second my second thought. My third thought is, what a great tragedy it was that National Socialism is born into that Germany of Hirsch's hopes and Hirsch's dreams. So that in many ways, I think Rav Schwab is a good example of this. The, the pain they all suffered by being excluded from the country which they so loved. I once heard they used to sing in, 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 in Frankfurt in the Hirschian Schul Friday night during World War One. After Yigdal, they sang Ich hat ein Kameraden, which is sort of the German version of Taps, 
It's sung for soldiers that are killed. They sung it for the Jewish boys who died in World War One. So in that Germany where there was a, a large segment of Jewry which was moving towards a more a harmonious relationship to the surrounding culture that in that very circumstance, Hitlerism is born. And I suspect that the Haredi listener at this point would say, you see, proves us right. So uh, I understand that point. And the same thing with Italy and same thing with other countries. But, you know, on the other hand, I guess England and America are refutations of that. Well, I think what happened was, is that that had to now Hirsch's legacy had to now be somewhat edited. I think once Nazism becomes equated with Germany, therefore, you know, all those, you know, Hirsch's and, and all the Yekka's, you know, connection to the beauty of whatever German culture was has to be erased. Or edited. You said edited. I'll, I'll go with that. Edited. You know, even in, in a sense, uh, Mayor, the American mentality towards Germany post-World War II, you know, you are a child. We can't allow you to have anything approaching any sort of weapons. Germany and Nazism became so fused in, in the worldview. And therefore, you know, that part of Hirsch needed to be streamlined and altered to a, a point that it can now be, you know, the, the aside is, of course, we have to be tyrim, uh, towards tyrim, uh, uh, we have to be tyrim in a, in, in, in such a positive way. Uh, we have to be community leaders. We need to make a difference. We need to be able to be involved in the community from a, a, a platform of respect. But I, I think a lot of the patriotism got whittled away. You don't hear that as much. You hear the fact that, that, that the, the, the great, the Washington Heights community, that the, 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 the members who were from the Hersheyan Gestalt became lawyers and, and doctors and, 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 and real contributors as opposed to taking money for Kyolim, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't necessarily see them as flying the, 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 you know, the, the flag on the 4th of July. Yeah. Well, maybe some in the early days, but the, the point I want to make is this, that what Hitler did was that he forever, not forever, but certainly for a long time, hustled the notion of the nation as a people. And the nation, from that point on in Western Europe, North America, became an idea. And the definition of an American became, I assent to this group of political dogmas, but it's not a people. And again, and I would argue that the long-term effect of that was very negative, because in England and France and all these places, Germany as well, the idea that the people might be something in their own right, not just as the promoter of the First Amendment, you know, in America, but I think that notion is very much damaged. This is one of the difficulties that Israel is experiencing as it presents itself to the world today, that Israel is a relic of a nationhood based on peoplehood. And the Western world, certainly, Eastern Europe might be different, but the Western world has made that trait that a nation is a people, and that Israel suffers from that today. So, you know, we've talked about books, and 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 uh, there was another book that was written not under um, by Rav Meir, Rabbi Meir Schiller, or, or Meir Schiller. It was written by the name that you were known growing up, Craig Schiller, and that is the book, The Guilty Conscience of a Conservative. Yes, it is a fascinating 
point of connection here between our conversation and that book. That book was my two things. It was a cry of pain that the American conservative movement that I had grown up with such affection for had effectively abandoned its first principles. So much of the book is juxtaposing Buckley or Goldwater of the 1950s or early 60s with Buckley and Goldwater and Tower and Thurman of the the late 1970s or mid-1970s. So it it was this sense of the, the absolute change which had overtaken this movement. That was the first part. And the second part was sort of an advocacy of more of a populist vision which would abandon some of the attachment to uh, uh, utter free enterprise, uh, Adam Smith notions. But that was that book. And it was really, uh, I think in a way, it is a theme that, that has haunted me all my life, which is I become attached to a set of ideas and a movement and a person. And then that movement or set of ideas steps out into the real arena of life as lived. And then arrives the point where the movement begins to compromise. And then is born the question of has the movement compromised its essence or has it just compromised some transitory principles? And again, this has been with, with me throughout my life, whether it's the American conservative movement or, or Square or why you, Robert Lamb's Toromada. I'm always haunted by this sense of what was essential in the doctrine and what may be jettisoned from the doctrine. So that was what that book was about. And that was published almost at the same time as as, as The Road Back, right? Yes, yes. There is one other story about what a young man does. I had sent Arlington House Publishers, they were the conservative publishing house of that day, I had sent them a handwritten first chapter of that book. I didn't hear back from them. Now understand in those days I didn't drive. So Cholomoyed, I asked one of my friends from from Square who did drive, you know, I want to drive over to New Rochelle where Arlington House Publishers is located, and I'm going to ask them, what did you, you do in my chapter? I'm essentially this chapter. What's the story? So we drove to New Rochelle. I went into the building. In those days, you know, there's no guards. There's no security. I just start wandering around the halls of this building, and I find an office that says, Richard Band, editor-in-chief. So I knock on the door. <laughs> okay. Who are you? I'm dressed up the whole thing. I said, you know, I sent you that chapter a couple of months ago. What's the deal? So he said, all right, sit down. So we started schmoozing and he was sufficiently impressed to say, okay, write a few more chapters and we'll see. And from that came the guilty conscience of a conservative because again, I didn't take no for an answer. Did your other book also generate some, uh, critical interest? Oh yeah, no. In in that in that sense, uh, all the major conservative journals of that point reviewed it. National Review, Human Events, Modern Age, Chronicles, everybody reviewed it. So um, it did make quite a, quite a splash at the time. Did that uh, give you the blessing of some new uh, friends of people who connected to you through that book? Well, again, you have to always know that I'm searching. I'm always searching for a bayam. So of the people that I dealt with in terms of the book and I spoke to, there were a few that I I enabled them to join my pantheon of uh, of heroes who continued to be my, my rebbe and Professor Thomas Molnar, Brent Bozell, uh, a few others. 
that I picked up at that point that uh, stay with me throughout the years. So yes, yes, but not not uh, not the conservative movement. Uh, Thomas Molnar wrote in his review of my book. He said, he said, this man is completely isolated from conservative political activism. He has nothing to do with the Republican Party, but yet, you know, he has what to say. So, uh, you know, the, the, it gave me, it gave me new rabbin. Well, again, part of why writing is such a fundamental part of what it means to be a human being, because it allows our messages to be conveyed beyond the spoken word. And it allows you to connect to someone that you wouldn't physically be able to meet under any normal circumstance. And that is the, the, the gift of, of, of what writing does. But it also, because of the limitations that podcasting doesn't have, you, you have to sharpen the idea uh, in, in a way that it can be soluble and, and volley back. And, and that, de- that generates within you a demand for the clearest type of thinking and, and articulation. And it's also a very lonely task. I, I think we shouldn't forget this, that writing is a lonely task. You're sitting there with your pen or your typewriter or computer, and you're not getting any immediate feedback. And hours and hours you got to sit there with no human contact and no human verification of what you're doing or saying. So in a sense, uh, being a Rebbe is a far easier task because you're getting daily feedback. But the writer's job is a very, very lonely one, and a person should only enter into it, I think, if he's capable of enduring uh, bouts of, of long periods of loneliness. And I think that's part of what restrains many from writing, because you do need a lot of self-reflection. Uh, you were blessed by having Norman Lamb uh, help you through, uh, and, and I think that's that, that's crucial. I think, Rev. Mayor, we live in an age where you know, books are, are, are spewed out uh, as quickly as uh, a person can get to his computer. They, they are developed even in the Torah world from speeches and drushes that, 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 that were sort of said at some late night Musser schmooze that some hack decided to, to put into English. The real test of, of great authorship means really being able to carefully guide your thoughts to somehow rethink what you thought was right yesterday uh, in the light of today. There's a vote from Abdul Talmud that he says, the state of when Mashiach is going to come, if Hashem Kiva. And he says, what's the pshat? What do the trees have to do with Mashiach's coming? So he said, there's so much falsha Torah and falsha svarim and narishkeit, and when Mashiach comes, the authors will not be able to write this kind of stuff. So the trees are going to be happy. Far less of them will be cut down in the days of Mashiach. That's my first thought. Next thing is a story that I'll tell. I was once working with one of the staunch Kanayim, sort of far to the right of the Satma Velt, during the great controversy about the public school in Monroe in the mid-1990s. And um, I was walking him through the state of constitutional law at that point as far as secularization of the public schools, you know, First Amendment decisions of the Warren Court. And I came back to him one day, and he read to me what he had written based upon what I said. And I said to him, let's call him Rebianko, I said, it's not completely that way. And he said to me, is it is it a little bit not like that, or is it completely wrong? I said, 
It's a Gansanishta Zoy. So he said, Azoy, he took the 12 pages he wrote and he tore them up in front of my face and he said, let's start again. Now, that's a great man. You never know. There might be some uh, people out there who are going to take our little discussions and decide to turn them into some wonderful book. Please don't. <laughs> no, if it's worthy, then please do. Take care. Have a good day, everybody. Be well. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. <laughs>